from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Welcome to the Discover Policing Podcast. I'm Brian DeGerta. What's happening now is um, there are more and more waivers being granted for flight over people with aircraft with parachute systems. And it's kind of a new trend that's going on right now. And I think that's the future of all public safety aircraft is that they're going to be integrated with parachute systems. So I think there's, there's a huge future in developing ways to make our job safer. And the whole idea is to keep officers out of harm's way. This episode is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office, and the department's full disclaimer notice is available at the end of the podcast and in the episode show notes. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the IACP or the COPS Office. My guest today, Captain Tim Martin, is the program manager of the Huntington Beach, California Police Department's Unmanned Aerial Systems Team and director of Unmanned Aerial Systems Training for the Los Angeles County Regional Training Center. I hope you enjoy the conversation I have with Captain Tim Martin as we discuss the public safety community's adoption of unmanned aerial systems and how it's redefining first responders in the 21st century. And now, here's my interview with Captain Tim Martin. Captain Martin, thanks for being on the podcast. Let's jump right into the first question. There's a lot of terms out there for what many people call drones, including unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs, remotely piloted aircraft or vehicles, RPAs or RPVs, but UAS or SUAS for small unmanned aerial systems appears to be adopted by public safety. Why is that? The SUAS came in when, when the FAA finally defined what a small aircraft system was, and, and it has to do with the weight of the aircraft. So, so yeah, it, it, the system is, the aerial platform could be uh, a rotary wing aircraft, it could be a fixed wing aircraft, it could be a, 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 a balloon um, if it's controlled by, remotely by, by a human pilot. So I think when most people think of them, they think of, uh, of a rotary aircraft, uh, single rotor or the quadcopter, which is what's commercially produced. But there's a whole line of fixed wing aircraft. There's, there's the tethered options, all that stuff. Are there specific reasons why public safety should choose one type of UAS over another? The, the missions that each one have are, are specific to, um, the biggest factor is, is length of flight time, distance, and, and mission itself. So your quadcopters are limited to 20 to 30 minute battery time. Uh, you can do 3D mapping with it. Um, uh, those are your more short range um, specific missions with um, cameras that can be uh, controlled and operated by the, the user. So your, your quadcopters are generally linked up to your remote to the phone where you can have a, a real time down length of what you're looking at. And you're usually mission specific. You're, you're flying to a certain location. You're, you're videotaping, you're photographing something uh, or you're searching for something uh, or you're delivering something. Um, your fixed wing platforms tend to have much longer battery life. So you can put that aircraft up and it could go a long, long distance. Fixed wings are used in search and rescue operations. You can autonomously fly 
a mission with a fixed wing where you can go and map an entire, you know, 10 acre farm field in a matter of, you know, a half hour or so on one battery. And it can be done autonomously to where you can set your mission prior to launching and it'll fly the mission, it'll return and land to where you tell it to. So is there a significant difference between what public safety is using them for and how a hobbyist is using them? What public safety is using it for and what uh, recreational using it for is the same, kind of the same purpose. It's a flying camera. So we're, we're, we're collecting data from the cameras. Um, but what we're trying to do in, in public safety is, is take something that was, was really designed for a hobbyist or designed for, for a um, photojournalist or, or you have your, your photography element to it and adapt it to our mission set. So what do you see as the most typical uses for UAS? Where do you see the most value in these? Basically, it's a force multiplier. It, it's a time saver. And, and what is being done right now in public safety uh, depends on the agency and what their mission is. But you're looking at um, uh, flying, um, uh, searching for suspects during a fleeing felon type situation where, where you can get that aircraft up fairly quickly. You can, you can use the, the, the camera or the, um, the thermal camera to assist the ground units in searching for a suspect, uh, using it for, um, um, you know, in more rural areas, they're using it with great success for, um, uh, lost and found, uh, you know, trying to find lost hikers and missing persons, search and rescue missions. Um, we're using it for crime scene photography. Uh, we're using it for traffic collision reconstruction uh, and traffic collision um, uh, documentation. Now that's very interesting. Would you be able to explain a little bit more about how that helps with collision reconstruction? So we're, we're taking it to, you know, traditionally the traffic collision Mapping is what, you know, is the obvious use of, of a drone, but what we're, we're using it for is we'll take a traffic accident intersection, for example, and we'll take each direction that the car's traveled. We'll go back a quarter mile, measure where the driver's head would have been in the driver's seat, fly at that altitude, and fly the path of, of the, where the vehicle traveled. And what we're doing is we're showing at a rel relative um, time frame of when the accident occurred, what the driver was seeing. Are there obstructions to the signal? Is, is there um, foliage covering signs? Is there construction imp, uh, impeding the roadway? Uh, or was there no factors and it was a clear path? So we're using the drones to further our investigations uh, and, and um, city liability. Are there any tactical situations that you've been using them for? Um, we're using it uh, quite extensively in, in tactical operations where we'll fly overwatch for a tactical situation for our SWAT team. Uh, we do an extensive indoor flying and indoor training uh, to where we'll send an aircraft inside of a building a residence to search it prior to, um, uh, you know, a human stepping foot in that building to try to see what we're doing. Uh, we're using uh, the capabilities of the lighting and the loudspeaker to interact with people. Missing, we've used it for missing persons. We used it for barricaded suspects and vehicles where we use, actually use the aircraft to communicate with them and talk them out of the car. Uh, we've used it for um, uh, special events uh, where we do overwatch over, over the U.S. Open of surfing, the 4th of July, uh, that, those type of events, uh, marathons. Uh, we use it for um, proactively responding to radio calls. So we have, we have two spots in our city where we can launch the aircrafts 
and and fly missions to handle routine radio calls, cancel patrol units. Uh, that's something we started this year um, during the 4th of July. So we've been hearing a lot about the Chula Vista Police Department in your neck of the woods there in California and how they've received a waiver from the Federal Aviation Administration to fly UASs beyond the visual line of sight. Why is that significant? The Chula Vista program is certainly a pioneer in, in paving the way for all agencies to start doing that. And I think that's a should be one of our primary uses of, of the aircraft is, is if we're able to get to a call quick and get eyes on, on the crime as is occurring or as our officers get there um, and assist in, in that, um, it certainly uh, will be, we know it's beneficial because agencies that have air support units that have helicopters, essentially you're, you're acting as the same role. You're, you're, you're giving that aerial support. Um, the ability to go beyond visual line of sight is um, one of our biggest challenges and one of the reasons why mo more agencies aren't working in a proactive uh, response to, to calls for service. We are doing a similar version to what Chula Vista is doing. I know there's other agencies that are doing it also, but we're limited to, to distance. We have to, we can only go out and, and when we do our operation plans, we go out prior to the event and we'll measure out how far you can go uh, and then we'll do that operation plan that you can't go beyond this this distance because you'll lose visual line of sight. So we generally will fly always with a visual observer, uh, and that visual observer will, will act as that visual line of sight uh, along with the pilot. The pilot also, uh, we require the pilot to keep line of sight. So any missions we do are within that line of sight distance, and, and being elevated on top of our city hall or parking structures gives us that ability to, to have that line of sight. So what should an agency consider before starting a UAS program? Really the, the first step in starting a program is there has to be a lot of research done. There's gotta be uh, the, the buy-in from obviously the, the chief of police, and then it goes from there, it goes to the city manager, city council, and that starts with education. This is what we wanna do, this is where we wanna go with the program, these are the benefits of the program. How do you address the privacy concerns of the community? Um, the ACLU came out with guidelines uh, uh, to law enforcement um, of what they want to see in, in these programs. And when you read the, the, the guidelines from the ACLU, they're actually to our, to our advantage. They, they're actually really reasonable. And if you follow those guidelines, the guidelines set by the IACP uh, and the presidential um, guidelines, uh, if you follow those three um, guidelines when you go to start your program, um, then there shouldn't be any problems with that. Oh, excellent. We'll put a link to some of those resources in our show notes. Uh, I highly encourage anybody starting a program to take a draft policy and a procedure manual and go sit down with, with the local you know, share stakeholders, whoever's involved, and say, look, these are, these are the requirements, whether that be with, with the ACLU themselves in your local office, or your city council and say these are these are the guidelines this is our policy we we are well within what they're what they're asking for what's nice about starting a program now versus three four years ago everything already exists you don't need to reinvent the wheel you just go and say hey can i let me have these 10 agencies policies and let's let's not go and deviate too much from what's been working and what's successful same with an operation manual i'll i will i'll give out our operation manual to anybody that asked for it as a starting point.
So it's it's just it's public awareness. Meet with your with your public. Let them know what you're planning to do, so that they're not caught off guard. Okay, Tim. So I don't want to get too far down in the weeds here, but it looks like in order for public safety to fly UASs, you need either a certificate of authorization or a COA from the FAA or a Part 107 certification, which appears to be more common. Can you explain more about Part 107? So Part 107 um, uh, covers a, a wide range of things, some that really apply to law enforcement, others that we'll never have to even worry about or want to get a, a, a waiver for. Um, uh, the, the, the first would be the size of the aircraft. Um, so the weight requirement is the, the first and foremost. Um, you can't fly at night. So the, the night restrictions are 30 minutes before sunrise and 30 minutes after sunset is pretty much your window. And then you can fly throughout the day without restrictions. Um, uh, you know, flying no more than 400 feet in the air, uh, which um, I don't know why you would want to do that anyway. We have to coexist with manned aircraft and, and you know, when you, get, when you get past 200 feet, there's, I, there's really no logical reason to fly that high with the camera systems that, are, that come with these aircraft. Um, you, you know, f some of the more obscured ones would be um, uh, you, you, have to, you have to have three-mile visibility, which really doesn't matter because you can't fly beyond visual line of sight anyway. Um, flying from a moving vehicle, um, you can't fly over people, which is a huge challenge and, and something that I think needs some better definition for, for law enforcement because, you know, unless the, the way it's written is unless you're Unless they're part of your operation, you can't fly over them. So there, there's there's some other other ones that don't that would never apply to us. Um, um, but those are those are currently what 107 uh, restricts. Now I understand that airspace is a pretty big deal depending on where agencies are located, and the FAA has a dedicated map on the web that details the off-limit areas and altitude restrictions for UASs. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Um, airspace is by far one of the biggest challenges for a lot of places, and then sometimes it's not a challenge at all. Um, if you fly within, like uh, Huntington Beach, for example, we fly within two airspaces. John Wayne Airport is is Class C airspace, and then you have um, the Joint Forces Training Base at Los Alamitos and the Naval Weapons Station, which all have restricted airspace. So an agency has to understand what is their airspace and how can they legally fly in it. So how do you navigate in areas that may have an airspace restriction? So if you have an operation in, uh, let's say we have an operation um, in John Wayne airspace and we didn't have a waiver for it and it's a tactical operation, we could call either call the tower directly and say, hey, can we fly in your airspace? Or you can, through the FAA, you can, you can go online and apply for the emergency COA. Um, we've, we've actually tried for an emergency COA to flight over people and they won't issue that. Why is flying UASs over people such a big deal? It seems like flying in urban or even suburban areas, that can be pretty difficult to avoid. And it, it's challenging because when these things lose power, when they lose a motor, when they collide with an object and they lose one of their motors, they don't fall straight out of the sky. You know, they, they, do, some, you know, they do some rotations and they, they, they fly crazy for a little while and um, it's really challenging to know where it's going to land. Um, but what's happening now is... Um, there are more and more waivers being granted for flight over people with aircraft with parachute systems. 
and it's kind of a new trend that's going on right now, and I think that's the future of all public safety aircraft is that they're going to be integrated with parachute systems. There have been a growing number of incidents involving hobbyists and even the media flying UASs that interfere with public safety operations. How big of a risk is this? The whole counter drone concept is is one of the more challenging concepts for us um, uh, in in the role of of teaching for Los Angeles County Regional Training Center. We have a counter drone class, and that's one of the that's really one of the hot topics. Is how can we as a public agency get these drones out of the sky that are interfering with emergency, that are interfering with aircraft. And the, the, the short answer is right now, federally, we can't. We, there is no laws with the exception to interfering with a, with a firefighting operation. There's no criminal law that allows us to go after the, the operator, uh, let alone force him to land his aircraft. Um, a lot of cities are enacting um, city ordinances uh, to prohibit the flight of, of an aircraft within their jurisdiction. But the way that the, the law is written, it only allows cities to restrict the takeoff and landing from their jurisdiction. So if you fly in from one area that's nowhere near the city and you fly into the zone and you didn't take off and land land from that city, there's, we're back to square one. Um, we've encountered, we've, um, we've successfully um, prosecuted um, interfering cases with, with the drone. We had a, an officer involved shooting where the, the aircraft flew within 100 feet of our, our helicopter, our police helicopter, and we were able to, to trace the aircraft back to and get the aircraft when it landed and then trace it back to the operator and, and we arrested him for that. Um, so lo there are ways to do it. Um, but um, the, the challenge is, is what is your threat? Identifying what your threat is. And if you have a, um, you know, a, a store-bought aircraft from any one of you know the common manufacturers and you see that's what it is you have a you have a UAS with a camera on it so your what's your threat your threat is is they're they're they have a camera and the aircraft could hit one or two people if it fell out of the sky versus if we're working a special event in let's say you know a downtown area or or on our beach and there's a large crowd or a sports stadium and you see a large agricultural drone flying towards your event with the sprayers or or uh, an aircraft coming with a large payload well that's a whole different story and so part of the the big education process is identifying your threat and and what are what are you going to do about that once you get it um, there's there's programs out there that will allow you to interfere with the aircraft um, electronically. Um, there's programs out there that will allow you to detect where the pilot is and where the aircraft is, and then at least you can find, you know, and try to do that. Um, but they all come with with caveats, and and you know, you, you, if you have an electronic jamming device, uh, that's great. You can't use it. The FCC will won't allow us to take a, an aircraft out of the sky. If you have a, um, an aircraft that will uh, shoot a net at it and take it out of the sky, then uh, the FAA says that, that they, they consider an unmanned aircraft the same as a, a manned aircraft and we can't interfere or, or shoot one out of the sky, if you will. So we're, we're, our hands are tied right now until regulations stop. You know, our, big, our, our best way to do it is find the, find the pilot. You know, luckily these batteries are 20 minutes and eventually it's gonna, it's gonna come home. 
And if you don't uh, have something in place during those events to have a team to go out there and find the pilot, then you're, you're, you, you know, you got to prepare on that end of it. So it's a challenge for sure. How are you handling the uh, calls for service from someone saying, hey, someone's flying a drone over my backyard and my daughter's sunbathing out there? Um, are, are you getting, are you, are you seeing a lot more of those calls? We, we get the complaints of my neighbors flying his drone over my house, and, and civilly there are ramifications if you have something like that where it's an invasion of privacy, and, and um, uh, we will do our best to respond to those calls. Um, and if we can find the pilot, then we'll educate him. You know, hey, look, this is, this is the concern. You're pro you know, um, most of the time they'll, they'll show us their video, you know, and they're filming something com completely unrelated. Um, I, I, I can't think of a time where we've ever contacted somebody. We get them down at the beach all the time. And, and we'll get people flying during a special events. And uh, the airspace around our beach is like any coastal, you know. Um, you have both rotor, you have helicopters and airplanes that fly at low altitudes. And it, it, it's a challenge to share the airspace. So we will get, um, we'll get the pilot, we'll identify him. And we'll just ask them to land. And, and nine times out of 10, they always land. So what's next for public safety? Where, where do you see this going, the use of unmanned aircraft as a public safety tool? What I see is agencies and cities that don't have air support, this will become their air support. And how you deploy it is, is the exciting part because your Chula Vista model of, of deploying an aircraft from a fixed location um, remotely beyond visual line of sight. I hope that's the future because that, that obviously opens the door to a lot of stuff. Um, but there's also value in, um, we've developed a system where everybody that's on our team has their own aircraft and they maintain it, they maintain the batteries, they have enough supplies to get, get by and they take it out with them on patrol. And when they see fit to use it, when there's a call for service or they think there's something that happens, they just, they're up within a matter of, of a minute or so. So our model is deployed from the field. And then if the big one hits and we have to pull our resources, they all bring their aircraft with them. And, and then we have other aircraft that assist. So that's another method of doing it. So um, I think you'll see it more integrated into patrol operations. Um, you'll see it more integrated into the, the fire service. Um, our, our program, one of the, the, one of the ways that we were able to be successful in launching our program is um, I don't think our city was ready for a law enforcement only drone program, if you will. So uh, we went with a public safety UAS program and we incorporate our fire and our lifeguard. So we fly, we fly missions for a fire department, we fly missions for our, our lifeguard. One of the things that we've been doing a lot of extensive testing on, both here at Huntington Beach and with the LA County Regional Training Center is, is payload deliveries. And I think payload deliveries have, have a huge um, place in law enforcement when it comes to everything we do. We, we're, we're looking at delivering throw phones in tactical situations, uh, delivering cell phones, um, delivering medical supplies, tourniquets, if you have a North Hollywood type scenario where you have officers that are pinned down for a length of time because the threat's still active and you can't get to them, um, at least you can, you can fly and you can either drop a bag to them or um, you deliver the aircraft itself. 
you know, it's, it's a throw-down aircraft. You just fly the aircraft right to the guy with a tourniquet on top of it or a med bag on, attached to it, and that one's out of commission. And then you go to the next one. And so I think there's, there's a huge future in developing ways to make our job safer, and the whole idea is to keep officers out of harm's way and be able to reach out and touch somebody without having to do it. You can deliver, you know, their their fight and fire rescues and swift water rescues. They're using the aircraft to deploy um, ropes to people that are on cars and stuck on roofs, and they're using them to deploy flotation devices. And there's a company um, with, with a device called the Arm Lock, and it, it it's a flotation device that goes over the arm and in, it inflates and uh, they're using it to pull people out of ice that when they fall on the ice rather than have people go up there they'll they'll deliver the the arm lock with a rope attached to it and they're 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 pulling people out of ice without putting other people in jeopardy wow that sounds like a excellent use of the uas technology well on that note we'll leave it there thank you captain tim martin for being on the podcast I want to thank Captain Tim Martin again for spending some time with us. I also want to thank you for listening. To find resources on this topic, please visit theiacp.org, and we'll also put a link in the show notes to some of the resources mentioned during this podcast. Feel free to email us with any questions or comments at discoverpolicing at theiacp.org. For this episode, I had research and production help from Michael Fergus, Thank you to the U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office for their support on this episode. Please see the show notes to learn more about the COPS Office and follow their work. This project was supported in whole or in part by Cooperative Agreement Number 2017-CKW-XK-004, awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, And as always, the opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers, IACP, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussions of the issues.